Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. Hey there, O'Toole. Before we get going on indignation, uh, which we saw at the Provincetown Film Festival a couple weeks ago, but is coming to the cinemas, uh, I think, tomorrow on the 29th, right? Isn't that right? That's right. right. At least a limited release starting in New York. I just want to mention a couple things. One is, I saw on Netflix the Tony Robbins film, I Am Not Your Guru. Oh, he's not? (laughs) Well, by the way, he's certainly not my guru, but apparently he's millions of other people's guru. And not only that, I mean, you have to give it to this guy. I don't know how, I don't, you know, he's not on anything or it doesn't appear to be. Although people do like put things in his mouth on, on the ends of little toothpicks that I guess give him energy. I think it's all natural though. But I just want to say that it was very disquieting, and I'm not going to review it, but I know that there are millions of people who have, I mean, famous people who have taken his his course. You know, Oprah fell madly in love with him and walked on hot coals, but I don't know. Um, but here's the thing, the, the and I just want to say this, because it, this is where that documentary thing gets very sort of in the gray area. It was done by Joe Berlinger. And the thing about this documentary doesn't question any of his methodology, and it really should call into question some of his methodology, because if you look him up on Google or whatever, there are some naysayers. And because Joe Berlinger never mentions, anywhere in the documentary, it never mentions that he attended the class and he's a, he's a, you know, he's a believer. So I, I think that makes it more of an infomercial than a real documentary. <laughs> but, you know, if you have an extra hour and a half, you know, it does sort of give you a moment to pause. Let me put it that way. Okay. And then secondly, we lost Gary Marshall this past week. Oh, it's so sad. It is sad. I think he was one of the great purveyors of feeling good in movies, don't you think? And television. It's a great way of putting it, Hollister. You know how recently we were talking about the documentary Obit, about the writing of the obituaries in the New York Times? Yeah. I ran to the New York Times. Bruce Weber, from the documentary, wrote Gary Marshall's obituary, and this is his opening line. If one were to count up the number of times any American or maybe anyone anywhere laughed in the last half century, the person responsible for more of those laughs than anyone else might well be Gary Marshall. <laughs> That's great. Well, <laughs> Isn't that fabulous? Yeah, but also starting with Happy Days, which was such a happy show, and it made you feel good, and it was... You know, and they had asked him originally to do that show with some with a family from the 20s or 30s, and he said, "I can't do that because I don't know those people, but I can certainly do the 50s." Sunday, Monday, happy days. Tuesday, Wednesday, happy days. Thursday, now, do you know where the Fonz came from? Do tell. He grew up in the Bronx, and one of the kids in his neighborhood, he says, was the Fonz. And not only that, he could tie a rope to an ice truck and pull it with his teeth. <laughs> And Gary Marshall said, and that that seemed really cool to me, so I put him in. It's so funny that you say that, because the other thing about writing the obituary, you always have to have the death confirmed. And in Gary Marshall's case, the New York Times confirmed the death by speaking with the lawyer Martin Garbus, who's a big-time lawyer. He was friends with Gary Marshall from the time they were teenagers, and he was the model for Richie. On oh, Happy Days. Oh, huh. He's also the father of Liz Garbus, who directed Nothing Left Unsaid, which you and I reviewed, and the Oscar-nominated documentary What Happened, Miss Simone. Aha, uh-huh, there you go, right? 
Nanu, nanu. Do you have a favorite quote for Gary? Gary Marshall once said, the best way to get happy is to make someone else laugh. That's a great quote. He had so many great quotes, but here's mine. If you're, okay. if you're creative, they let you be the showrunner, comma, producer. The first thing my partner and I did as producers was hire ourselves as directors because who else would hire me? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I think it's true. I, I, don't, I, you know, I think he, he had a way of truth saying that was so, I don't know, humble, you know, that you just liked him, you know? You know something shocking? He was such a powerhouse in television and film. He was nominated for five Emmys. He never won one. But Happy Days never won an Emmy? That's shocking. Isn't this shocking? But four of the top five shows on the air in 1979 were Gary Marshall shows. Wow. And when you think about the odd couple, Happy Days, Mork and Mindy, Laverne and Shirley, of course, starring his younger sister, Penny Marshall. He also also said, never underestimate the power of your sister. (laughs) (laughs) They gave a very funny interview together. The reason they called her Penny is that when she was born, Gary Marshall and her sister Ronnie really wanted a horse. And the parents told them, you're not getting a horse, you're getting, you know, your sister. But if you save up your pennies, someday maybe you can afford a horse. And Penny Marshall, of course, was saying, I don't know where they thought they were going to put the horse since we lived in an apartment building in the Bronx. (laughs) So that's a sweet story. So that's why she's called Penny. We're going to play a clip here talking about growing up together and the pact they made for the three siblings to stick together. <laughs> and uh, three kids, mother, father, grandparents, and nobody liked each other much. <laughs> <laughs> so when my brother and sister, who were much older than me, you know, when you're eight, seven, eight, that's, the age difference is quite different than it is now. And so my brother called us together. Two girls and me. You want to tell them? You tell them. <laughs> no, no, I could notice then. I was like uh, 17. I noticed our parents were not uh, leading us very well. They were, they were okay. My father was always working. And my mother was down in the cellar of the apartment building teaching dancing. So I remember calling... Uh, Penny and my sister Ronnie and say, listen, we're not getting much help here. So I think it's shaky. So I suggest that the three of us stay together. Our strength is in the three of us together, and that's what we should do when we held hands, and that was it. Except the problem was I was eight, and they both went away. (laughs) Oh, I love that, yeah. When he was putting together Laverne and Shirley, they had to package this show quickly. They needed a theme song. He asked his sister Penny if he could use the song she used to sing growing up in the Bronx on her way to school. Yeah, I think she made that song up, actually. It wasn't even a real song. She made it up, and Gary Marshall was a drummer. So whenever you heard a drum on Laverne and Shirley, that was actually Gary Marshall playing. You know, amazing guy. Totally amazing. Mm-hmm. No, wait, now, did you see his last film, Mother's Day? You know, I missed most of his holiday-themed movies. Yeah, I, I was going to say, that was all with that theme of New Year's Eve and Valentine's Day and Mother's Day. You have Jennifer Aniston, Kate Hudson, a star after star after star after star sitting in there. And... Um, Julia Roberts, who was in, let's look, I mean, I think four of his movies. And Kate Hudson was on the set when he filmed her parents doing um, 
overboard. Yes. She was on the set, and he let her crack the thing that said, uh, you know, when you start filming uh, action. Oh, the clapper? Yeah, he let oh. her do that and say action. And then on this film, on, on um, Mother's Day, her son was on the set, and he remembered, and he had her son do the same thing. And from generation to generation. Plus, I watched the outtakes um, of Mother's Day, and they had a good time. You know, Ron Howard gave an interview, and he said he was asked the best piece of life advice Gary Marshall ever gave him. Uh And he said Gary Marshall was definitely a perfectionist, and he was there to succeed, and he worked really, really hard. But he did live by the following axiom. He said... Whenever someone started to gain success, Gary Marshall would say to them, that's great, congratulations, but please don't ever forget, life is more important than show business. He said that he liked to get actors between just when they started to rise to success, but before they went to rehab. (laughs) It's always shocking to me that he did Frankie and Johnny, the movie version of Terrence McNally's play with Al Pacino and Michelle Pfeiffer, and he also did Beaches. Those were both... And, do you know the other one? The Other Sister, another serious, challenging film. Oh, I never saw that. Yeah. By the way, it's a really good film, and it's one of my top three of his, actually. So is there one, though, that you would see over and over and over again? For me, it would obviously be Pretty Woman. I mean, we know the answer to that question. It's one of my favorite films of all time. You know something that just cracked me up? Gary Marshall attended Northwestern University, which has a building named after him. But Penny Marshall has said their father really wanted them all to go to out-of-state schools so that they would lose their Bronx accents. Uh, <laughs> he just said, brought it with him, yeah. It went well. Like, look how well that turned out. I mean, even Laverne and Shirley, that's supposed to take place in Milwaukee, you know, half the people there seem to have these Bronx accents. He was very big. He believed in nepotism. Mm-hmm. So family and friends were often included in his pictures, and that's where the it's why he said the Bronx accents follow you around everywhere. So <laughs> this is one of my favorite pieces of trivia from the production of Happy Days. The studio did not want the Fonz wearing a leather jacket and all that implied. So Gary Marshall negotiated and he said, is it okay if he wears a leather jacket when he's on a motorcycle? And they said, okay, but when he's not on a motorcycle, he has to wear a windbreaker. So Gary Marshall then wrote a second memo to everyone saying the Fonz will always be on a motorcycle. <laughs> Remember how he used to like ride yeah, into the diner? Yeah, yeah. So then so Gary funny. Marshall said he took that windbreaker and threw it in the trash, and Fonzie's leather jacket is now at the Smithsonian. What an amazing life, no question. May he rest in peace, and I don't know if there'll ever be another one like him. Thank you, thank you, thank God for you. The main movie we're going to talk about today is... Indignation. Yes. By the way, that word, I realize I don't, you know... I just don't use it enough to be able to have it roll off my tongue so easily. I'm with you. I've called it imitation, irritation. I know, I know. I see by your transcript that you're a remarkably gifted student. First in your family ever to attend college. Scholarship from your temple. But under religious preference, I see you didn't write Jewish, though you are of Jewish extraction. I'm wondering why that is. I don't prefer to practice one religion over another. 
and James Seamus, the longtime yeah. Ang Lee collaborator as both his producer and writer. This is his directorial debut as far as a feature film now, goes. Wait, you've got to, we've got to take a step back and look at him as a producer of Milk, Dallas mm-hmm. Buyers Club, Brokeback Mountain, which they're doing a, a showing of today, actually, just an extra showing of it, yeah. so I think he's going to speak. And Ang Lee is in town as part of this posse. Suffragette. Suffragette, Crouching yes. Tiger, Hidden Sense Dragon. and Sensibility. I mean, this the guy, body of work. Yeah, the body mm-hmm. of work. And by the way, he was there at the showing that we went mm-hmm. to, and he spoke afterward. Could not have been more humble, excited, first yes. directorial Debut and and he wrote the script too, and he, he wrote it here in P Town. I know he did. So yes, yeah. he's he's back. Um, and it's based on the Philip Roth novel Indignation, which was his twenty ninth book. Yeah, it was. And it was it's a it's very interesting that it was chosen. It mirrors uh, Philip Roth's actual uh, trek through college life. He went to Bucknell. So Philip Roth has written a gajillion books. Mm-hmm. A lot of them have been optioned, but let's look at the successes. So Goodbye Columbus, huge success way back when, right? Okay, Portney's Complaint and The Human Stain. Okay, all of those are Roth are Roth novels, right? That have, were made into movies. Okay, this one, people said to him, he mentioned this at the thing last night. Why would you want to do a Philip Roth novel? Because the truth mm-hmm. is, with all of them that have been done, there's only been three that have really had standout, uh, you know, exceptional success. Now, the storyline, we have to give a little bit about the storyline. It's a young, about a young Jewish man from New Jersey who goes to college in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, his parents are very anxious about him leaving. And this is the 1950s. It's the 50s, and uh, he's consumed with death, which... We know that um, Roth wrote this book later. He's just written it in the last 15 years. And, and it was one of the last he did before he stopped writing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And he, at that point in time, was consumed with death. So here's this young man who who's, who ends up, you know, we're not going to tell you what, hap- what happens to him in the end. But it was a risk for him to take this movie at all and do it. But secondly, it does mirror Roth's um, trajectory through his college years. He says it's based on some of his own experiences. And the man runs, you know, has a a woman that he falls madly in love with. It's totally based on an obsession with, you know, that that boyhood obsession or young manhood obsession with sex. Okay. perhaps psychosis. And she's a Sylvia Plath-like okay. character. And he's sort of rudderless in terms of what he's going to do with his life, really. He's just... But very focused on his academics. Very focused on being... A, well, he's a brilliant academic. You know, I also saw similar character um, setups in The Graduate. And huh. talk about a Woody Allen-esque type of movie... This one was a little darker than Alan without some of the humor of Alan, but it's a very Woody Allen kind of approach to um, the guys obsessed with sex, you know, and, and going through all these things. So this girl, it, it's, you know, their first date, she ends up giving him a blowjob, which for him, he thinks there must be something wrong with her or with him because why would someone do this for him? <laughs> I mean, the whole thing is is sort of tongue-in-cheek funny but not. It's sort of like that hashtag funny but not funny. Mm-hmm. And I think there were a lot of similarities around it. It was an interesting choice for him, but James did say in the Q&A afterward that what he thought the movie was totally about was about being adaptable. Interesting. He also called the film transcendentally tragic. Yeah. 
Well, it is a tragic film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really tragic, by the way. Yeah. Terribly tragic. He said the funniest thing I thought about adapting a book into a movie, and he said doing that is like bad marriages, where people say we were faithful in spirit. <laughs> Don't you, I never understood what that meant either. I yeah. thought that was just the funniest quote. Right. He said, you know, you definitely lose voice when you adapt. He said he was drawn to this particular Roth book because it's more fable-like. Yes, now, interesting, here's where you lose something sometimes when you have a Roth written word. Mm-hmm. Roth's written words are, you know, he's very good at explaining the detail of everything. And I felt that the movie, one of the interesting things about the movie is there's no detail. There, If you look at the room in their house, like when he's in the home with his parents, there is nothing on the walls. There's nothing on the tables. There's not a flower to be seen. There's not a dish to be seen. There's not a picture to be seen. In the... Um, where the um, butcher shop, all there is is meat and the table. There's nothing on the walls. There's no- what else would you put in a butcher shop? Well, and sometimes there's things hanging <laughs> on the wall. I'm still recovering from that bloody meat okay, being thrown well, around okay. on the counter. That's true. That's true. In his hospital room, nothing but the flowers she brought in. You know, it's a hospital room. Okay. I'm just saying that it was devoid of detail. The movie was devoid of detail. And one of the details that I pulled out of the Roth novel, which I thought was really interesting is um, the girl that he falls in love with, uh, she has an attempted suicide. Yes. And uh, in the book, Marcus describes it as he looks at it and he thinks when she cut her wrist, it must have been like a kosher bloodletting. Oh. Now, keep in mind, his father is a butcher. Mm-hmm. And if you are a kosher butcher, the, the difference between co- you know the meat that's been butchered by a kosher butcher is that they have to let all the blood out of the animal. They, they, they drop all the blood out of the animal before they cut the meat up. And because that's what you have to do. That's very interesting. Yeah. You know, even what you're saying about the sets, I'm really thinking about this because I remember there was a scene where he arrives on the college campus and he opens up his dorm room. Yeah. And it did seem a little devoid of things, but then I thought, but this was also before people had computers No, but every single, you know, you go into someone's home, usually there's pictures, there's things out that tell you who that family is. Mm -hmm. You know, is it particularly pristine? Is it sort of a mess? I mean, you can learn something about the family. There's no set in this movie that had anything in there, and that's very un-Roth-like because he was very always very you know literate in terms of giving you that kind of extra words to tell you. But I thought kosher bloodletting, when he described her cutting her wrists, it just tied it all together in a way that the movie couldn't. It just missed. You and know. James Seamus said, you know, it's very ambitious to yeah. adapt a Philip Roth novel. And that's why. And exactly. there's always gaps. There's gaps between the narrator and the persona of the narrator. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Um, I love I loved him when he got up and spoke afterward. He was mm-hmm. really, really good. Okay, the other thing that comes out in this, you have to talk about Bertrand Russell if you're going to, you know, if you're going to... And we definitely have to talk about the acting, yes, but we can talk about Bertrand yeah. Russell first. Okay, mm-hmm. I have not read anything, so it, it's based, by the way, on, um, he. at one point he's sitting in the dean's office, and one of the things that um, James said in the Q&A is that what struck him about that whole scene is that the dean is the only one telling the truth, mm-hmm. and Marcus is lying, and I didn't recognize it until he mentioned it. So if you're going to go see the movie... Keep that in mind that the dean is telling the truth and he's lying when you really feel as if it's the exact opposite, which I thought was totally stunning for him. And I was grateful he gave me that a little bit added in. But anyway, so Marcus sort of uses Bertrand Russell uh, to walk through it. And I went and checked it out. And basically that was based on um, 
on Roth's you know commitment to Bertrand Russell, but also on a an essay that Russell wrote uh, called "Why I'm Not a Christian," mm-hmm. which I read. And very complex man. <laughs> yes, he was. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, first he has to define Christian, what is a Christian. Then he has to look at the life of Jesus and see if Jesus's life would reflect the, the enormity with which he was getting. It was all this stuff. And it's sort of like, are you spiritual or not? Just, you know, give me, you know, give me the answer. So I, I you know, I just, I think if you can read that essay before you go, Why I'm Not a Christian by Bertrand Russell, I think it would be easier to get through that scene and to understand it See, better. we are just sounding like the most intellectual beachcombers <laughs> ever. We have to give shout-outs to this tremendous cast. Tracy Letts played the oh dean. Oh, my God. Pulitzer Prize-winning, Tony-winning Tracy Letts, who wrote August Osage County. And amazingly good in this film. He is so good. Um, I saw him on Broadway in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I'm still afraid of Tracy Letts, but he's done everything from Elvis and Nixon to The Big Short to now he's in Indignation. He's busy, busy, busy guy these and days. And James's use of the camera in looking directly at the characters while they're doing many things, including Marcus in his sexual exploits. There's a lot of direct... You're making him sound like a predator. I, I thought he was like a sweet kid. Oh, no, I don't think he was a predator. He was just a kid obsessed with sex. As See, I wouldn't even say he was obsessed I think because he was so inexperienced, he was flummoxed. Well, at the beginning of the film, the boys are staying there. I think I think clearly Roth has a, a sexual obsession. Yes. Yeah. He's at the beginning. They're talking and saying not only did he die, but I think he died a virgin. When they were talking about one of their friends who didn't make it back from Korea, mm-hmm. you know, it starts off right at the beginning with that whole thing about sex is as important but as that's life. His friend saying it. Well, he sort of said nodded i mean he was part of that walked up into the conversation no and he's not a predator at all and i don't mean to imply that in in any way shape or form but played by logan lerman who i love i saw him in the perks of being a wallflower for anyone who hasn't seen that film i highly recommend it also based on a book and that that came out in 2012 his first appearance on the big screen was playing Mel Gibson's youngest son in The Patriot oh, wow. back in 2000. He actually has oh a God. lot of credits to his name. Talented, talented actor. The amount of screen time he has in this movie and the amount of dialogue, it was almost Sorkin-esque. Some of those scenes, by the way, are go on for a long time, and it cannot have been easy to roll that off your tongue that way. Not at all. Very, that Dean's office scene is unbelievable that way. It felt like theater. It yeah. definitely felt like a stage drama. You're socializing enough? Yes, I am, sir. Have you gone on any dates? Uh, uh, Dates? Dates? Uh, Yes. Yes, I have. One. Just one? Doesn't Tracy Letts kind of remind you of Jeff Daniels? No, not at all. Really? Not in the least. Not even in their voice? Not ever, no. Their delivery of a line? No. Okay, moving right on. Jeff Daniels is the ultimate wasp, a little bit... A little bit sarcastic, sardonic, you know, just, you know, no, 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 no. But what I did think about was Jesse Eisenberg. I was thinking, this is so funny that you say that, because for Logan Lerman? I was thinking about if Jesse, if this had been a Woody Allen movie, Mm -hmm. and Jesse Eisenberg had played this part, had played Marcus, Mm -hmm. it would have been a totally different movie. And if you look at how Jesse Eisenberg has played some roles of the, from a neurotic family, Jewish kind of, you know, situation like that. He he Marcus played it very low key, 
very, you know, his anxiety was more verbal than physical, you know, Jesse, whereas Jesse Eisenberg is like anxious, handshaking, you know, he's, he, it's almost like a reversal in how they approached playing the same kind of person. Mm -hmm. And I like Marcus's way ever so much better than Jesse's. I was thinking of you when I was watching this because I remembered our (laughs) podcast when we did the end of the tour, Uh which was really a two-hander. And Jesse Eisenberg was one of those two people. And I remember in our podcast, you said that Impressed as you are, you've never really been in love with Jesse Eisenberg. I don't like. He's not likable. Yeah, and I found Marcus totally likable. Lerman yep. is so likable. Right. He right. really, really is. You he's not likable. He's guy. lovable. He, he's yes. he's please pick me kind of mm-hmm. you know. Whereas Jesse Eisenberg can never be that person. So well done, and of course playing the love interest, the psychotic little Sarah Gadden. Yes, who we know from. I don't know. A Royal Night Out. Oh, right. She played P1. She was yeah. Queen Elizabeth. She's Canadian in real life. So now we've seen her play a Brit and an American. I want to hear all about your mother and your father, the butcher, and what it's like working in a butcher shop and what the girls were like in Newark. Relax. Trust me, I'm trying. You know, I had a problem with her hair. Was it too blonde? No, it just never moved. And it was the 1950s. <laughs> no, the hair moved in the 50s. It was coiffed and sprayed, but hers wasn't sprayed. It was like there were holes in her hair, like there were empty spaces. It was like there was something wrong with her hair. And I wanted to say, can you brush gaps. your hair before you make it not move? And I don't know her hair. I had a real problem with her hair, really? but I think she was compelling in this role and very Boy. good at. I can't quite trust you. You know, it's, I felt like it was one of those daisy things. I, she loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. She loves me not. She's crazy. Yes. She's not crazy. She's crazy. Uh-huh. She's not crazy. You never knew whether she really was okay or whether she totally wasn't. And you know, it was that dynamic missing, in my opinion, in the movie version of Gone Girl. Huh. I'm afraid something terrible happened. I'm afraid I may have had something to do with it. Here, yeah. you know, like you totally saw how it was that cat and yeah. mouse, and one was yeah. the cat, and then they became God, the mouse. She was good, but she was very good at never letting us be comfortable with her, mm-hmm. but still liking her. Yeah. In other words, she she was disquieting through mm-hmm. the entire movie. And what do you quote unquote well bred but psychotic? Yeah. Okay, and the couple that played Logan Lerman's parents in yeah. Indignation. They are both Tony nominated actors. They have played a couple before. Together? Yes. In what? Cabaret. Are you sure? Yeah. Life is a cabaret, old chum. Yeah, so it's Denny Burstein, who you just saw on the Tonys performing from Fiddler on the Roof, oh. who received an, a Tony for that role. Wow. Look, the, it, the cast was exceptionally put mm. together. And you also know that his power as a producer made people want to work with him on this. Because, let's face it, this guy, you know, has done some of the greatest films that have been put out in the last 25 years. I was amazed that he shot this film in 24 days. That's what he said. And yeah. he said the Coen brothers influenced him. And I thought, yes. I don't see the Coen and brothers. And Van Sant. Um, would you recommend people see it? I thought the acting was terrific, but I'm not naturally drawn to the story. Um, I'm drawn to the story. You are? Yeah. Not necessarily the story, but I'm not drawn to the hook. I'm drawn to it. Okay. Yeah. I didn't love the beginning... And the end closing. It was like bookends. I didn't I didn't love it. Were those the framing devices that uh-huh. James Seamus added like it. to the yeah. book? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He said it was a new thing that he had, was creating and had done, but I, I didn't it didn't 
work for me. I don't think it was necessary. I think mm-hmm. it could have skipped the beginning opening one, and I think you could have just used the one at the end. Yes. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but that. But other. I, I. I'm hoping people will see this film, and this is the kind of film, by the way, that you know, it's 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 a little long. Mm-hmm. I think it it could be a little more edited. There. I mean, there are things that could be done to fix it. But I don't think it was a high budget film, and no, you know, it was definitely under five million dollars. You can do good movies, people, without spending gajillions of dollars. You know, and you without can. Without killing your crew. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, there's that too, right? Yeah.